Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. Simon Owens is a journalist who, in his writing, podcasting, and newsletters, covers the whole gamut of digital media from the creator side to the publisher side, from the journalist side to the business side. So today we've got a great wide-ranging conversation about everything from newsletters to YouTube to paywalls to podcasts. And do, in fact, check out Simon's great podcast, The Business of Content, because as we say on this episode, we recorded these as a back-to-back twofer. I was on his show and he was on this one. Please enjoy Simon Owens. Basically, Simon, you cover, I think, what, what, what you call uh, the the business side of content, the the business yeah, of my, content. Yeah, my um, tagline is how people create, distribute, and monetize their digital content. So, in your mind, is that from the creators or journalist standpoint, or is it everything? Like, um, how do you describe the beat? Is it just like even publishers, the whole the whole shebang? Yeah, I mean, it's really I've, I'm really fascinated in like like what how you know really innovative ways that people are going about creating content, whether that's articles, videos, podcasts. Uh, newsletters or whatever, like what went into the thinking of creating it, what what goes into every day, what that person does every day to put out this amazing content. But then I'm also really fascinated in distribution because I I don't think, I don't believe in that adage that if you create great content, people will come. You really have to think about what's the way to optimize it, how do you distribute it, what platforms. Uh, And then also I've always been fascinated with just the monetization side of it uh, and, and, uh, and how those three different things come together. Part of it is because I've worked in both journalism and and then also marketing and PR. So I've worked on both the brand side and the journalism side, whereas I think a lot of journalists are just kind of, um, they, they think mostly about the content side and they don't think about like how the business, the business behind that, the, the model that actually funds their journalism. Or, or the craft side, I guess you would say or something. Yeah. Uh, um, well, this is why you're one of my favorite people, favorite sorts of people to talk to because we can hit so many topics. So let's, let's start with one that you just mentioned, which is newsletters. Um, how all of a sudden newsletters are such a huge thing. Um, and, and it's, well, actually there's, there's several different ways we can go about this, but like you wrote about how one of the main things about newsletters is that it, they're outside of platforms so that publishers have more control, but also that even though that newsletters might not have the virality of something like social media, um, publishers are finding that newsletters are a more like loyal audience. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, we're talking about this on a podcast. Uh, it, 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 you see a lot of comparisons made between newsletters and podcasts and they talk about the intimacy and how, you, you know, on something like a, like a normal web article or video or something like that, or social media, it's just, it's just become such commoditized because you're, you know, you open Twitter and it's just uh, content is flowing through at a million miles an hour. Um, but, but with like podcasts and newsletters, you have to invite them into your life. Like you have to specifically not only sign up for a newsletter, but then you have to go into your inbox and for a lot of email platforms, confirm 
uh, click on a link to confirm. It's literally double opt in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in, in some ways, like you said, that doesn't go viral. It's a lot harder to grow your newsletter audience, but because they have to go through tr- so much trouble to invite you in, you do like those people have like a much uh, stronger connection to you. Uh, you know, reading you for becomes a habit as long as you're continuing to put out a good product. Um, and yeah, and I, I find that it drives way more traffic. Like if I send out a tweet, I, I, I look at my, tw- my Twitter stats pretty religiously and all the stats for all the different content I create, you know, maybe 1% of my followers are going to see my tweet. Whereas, you know, a newsletter that I send between 30 and 40% of those people who have subscribed are going to open that newsletter every single time I send it. And so you, you, compared to other platforms and penetration, there's just no comparison. Well, right. You wrote about like uh, with the New York Times and like, I think, I'm actually looking at it right now. Like Condé Nast data team found that whether someone subscribed to a New Yorker email newsletter was the number one indicator that they'd eventually pay for the magazine's content. But that's something that I've wondered about is like, is it just loss leading or like lead generation? Like what, what about the actual monetization of newsletters? Like what about, cause I, I don't know that I've read this anywhere. Like what about ads in newsletters, like literally monetizing newsletters as standalone things? Yeah, there are newsletter advertising platforms. I, there's this guy named Ernie Smith. He has, um, he has a newsletter called Tedium that has a lot of subscribers. Uh, and he kind of experimented with some of these and there's some kind of, you know, there's like exchanges that you could go to, but it's not like, and, and it, it's definitely a much of a more of a direct sales type of thing, less programmatic. So you're, so um, it's, it, usually you have to have someone who's like actually going out and selling those advertise those ad- ads basically um, where I'm seeing a lot of the monetization with newsletters directly is through paid newsletters. In fact, right. I have an article article going out uh, today. So because you have that kind of intimacy uh, you have a stronger connection. And like you said, um, there's all these studies that show that, you know, a a newsletter subscriber to the New York times newsletter, uh, one of their newsletters are twice as likely than a non-newsletter subscriber to turn into a paying subscriber. Like you said, with the New Yorker, it's the number one indicator. Um, the Seattle times found that newsletters drive 15 or 15 newsletter subscribers are 15 times more likely to turn into paying subscribers than, uh, Facebook followers. So that, so a lot of people are finding out or thinking, you know, if they're so likely to subscribe, why don't we allow them to subscribe within the newsletter to be in, in order to get like a premium newsletter delivered to their inbox? So you're seeing platforms like there's one called Substack, right, right. Uh, where you start by by trying to generate free newsletter subscribers, and then you start slowly trying to convert them into paying subscribers where they can get extra um, extra newsletters each week that only paying subscribers can get to. That was really kind of pioneered by this guy named Ben, Tom- ben Thompson who runs. Uh, this blog called Stratechery. Everyone uh, so listening knows. Cool. Everyone listening to this show knows Stratechery. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, of course, we're on the Tech Meme Podcast. Yeah. So, uh, so you're seeing that's where you're seeing a lot of direct monetization with newsletters. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually recently had a conversation with Stub, Substack, but um, the let, let, let's flip it around though, because like. It, um, on the one hand, like publishers are thinking of it as like sort of like I guess lead generation or like uh, maybe a, a more polite way of saying it is is like growing audience affinity and and loyalty and things like that. On the on the publisher side, I feel like in digital media, everyone everyone 
has been putting up paywalls recently. Um, are, are you getting a sense? Have have they been successful? Like because I feel like you know again being like sort of an internet historian, like paywalls are things that were always verboten that never worked. Have we gone through some sort of like through the looking glass moment where now they are working for publishers? Well, I think like norms are changing, and that's one of the reasons why paywalls didn't really work in the past because it was usually like one, you know newspaper or something like that striking off and on its own where most the vast majority were free but now that like the industry in mass is switching to these paywall strategies i think it is actually kind of changing the mindset of the average consumer and if you look at like recent polling on whether someone is uh is willing to pay for digital news it's still strikingly low the something like less than 20 percent um of people say that they would be willing to pay for digital news but we're finding that every single year that that number is jumping up drastically it's basically exponentially growing it's doubling um year over year or maybe it's not quite doubling but it's 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 growing very quickly so i think it's about kind of changing the paradigm and the way that people think about it now the other question is is like how many how many newspapers or news sources will you actually pay to subscribe to uh there's the vast majority of people who do subscribe to a news source online only subscribe to one and then it it drops precipitously after that for people who subscribe to two or three um uh so i mean i think that that's another thing that they're gonna have to deal with and there's this question of like how many subscriptions are too much are people coming late to the game are they you know not going to be very successful uh, that's something that we're finding out right now. Like right now, we're only reading about the the largest success cases, like the Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. We're seeing some early data that some of these downstream newspapers, like the Dallas Morning News, the Seattle Times, they're not really converting their readers at a high enough pace for them to make up for the massive amount of money they're they're losing from you know print advertisers abandoning them. Well, that makes me think of um, maybe not for the newspapers, but well, some for the newspapers, but um, Apple News Plus, which you've written about. And uh, I want you to I want you to eventually make the argument that you made that I read about why it won't cannibalize publishers paid subscriptions. But first of all, I feel like Apple News Plus kind of dropped like a stone and I haven't heard anything more about it. Like on your beat, have you heard like is it a success? Is anybody doing it? Are publishers happy with it? Do you know anything at all? So Apple News itself has been a tremendous success in terms of like actual user adoption. So that's the free version. Last I heard, it had somewhere between 50 and 90 million regular users. I saw some uh, a recent headline. I haven't been able to dive deep into it. Um, that uh, the Wall Street Journal isn't seeing a lot of meaningful revenue from it yet. Uh, I mean, it's it's of course it's going to have a big blowout announcement, uh, but it's going to be some it's going to be slow going in terms of conversion, and and they still have a lot of iteration in the product because I've you know from what I've seen it's just not well de- it's not well designed. It's basically like a lot of these magazines are just plopping glorified PDF uh, files onto it, so it's not a great user experience. So the question is, is is Apple really investing the resources and helping publishers having kind of turnkey key solutions for, you know, actually converting their articles into something that people will actually want to pay for to read? 
So, uh, just real quick, uh, regurgitate for me. Why, why do you think, cause I'm super skeptical about this. Why do you think Apple news plus, if it works might actually be a good deal for publishers? Well, I mean, look, at it's a lot of the arguments against Apple News Plus. You could have made the same argument against Spotify and the music industry. You could be like, you, you know, travel back to 2007, 2008, and, say, and these music labels would be like, you know, why am I going to give you my music library? All I'm going to be doing is cannibalizing my iTunes sales or my, my lucrative CD sales. Uh, and if you look at like what the, the labels make on a CD s- sale versus what they make on a single stream on Spotify, th- there's no comparison. But what, what actually happened is that, you know, in the past, actually, a very, studies have shown that a very small, even, even when the music labels were at their fattest and were receiving the most revenue back, you know, in the 90s, it was still a, like a re- relatively small number of people within the total population that were buying CDs on a regular basis. It was just that CDs just had such a high profit margin. What Spotify was, uh, was, was able to do. And obviously later newcomers, later comers like, you know, Apple music and title was that they were vastly able to expand the user base of, uh, of music buyers and to expand how much they were paying on month and average. Cause you might only buy t- back in the, back in the nineties, you might only buy like two or three new CDs a year Whereas right. now you're you're paying ten dollars a month per month. That's you know, adding up, upwards year, yeah. hundred twenty dollars a year. So it both vastly expanded what the average user was paying, and ex- it vastly expanded the the actual ecosystem of uh, of people paying. So this gets back to kind of what people call subscription subscription fatigue. Sure, you're going to uh, spend fifteen dollars a month for your New York Times subscription, maybe. You know, you might buy that New Yorker subscription or some other magazine you like, but are you going to subscribe to four, five, six newspapers or magazines? So this is talking about those downstream magazines that might not be your first buy. And so, like, my argument was, in best case scenario, uh, you know, Apple and, you know, obviously Apple's on over a billion devices, it could, you know, vastly expand um the number the total number of people who are paying to, to subscribe so uh by expanding that universe yes they would the, each publisher would be making per less per unit or yet less per article but it could vastly expand um expand the number of people who are subscribing for news but you know widening the revenue but the other point i made is you know i made a uh, argument not necessarily that it would succeed but it would be it would not be a neck neck negative it wouldn't cannibalize uh publishers revenue and my argument for that had to do with kind of the user experience of apple news plus that they were going to be mainly reading it on their devices uh that so that would be locked in so obviously android users would be kind of excluded pc users would be excluded and also that like a lot of these publishers like the new yorker and others like not their entire inventory for the new yorker for instance only articles from their print publication uh would be available on apple news plus whereas they have like a very robust daily publishing uh, output for their content that they're doing with very high quality content, so that there would be plenty of opportunity uh, for public for 
a certain type of subscriber to subscribe to Apple News Plus that either A, might not be a typical subscriber to, let's use the example of The New Yorker. So you're bringing in a person who wouldn't have subscribed to you anyway, but also that Apple or The New Yorker could have enough differentiation in its own product to where, you know, there would be an entire different use case for someone subscribing to The New Yorker versus Apple News Plus. As a family, we've used Instacart for years. Frankly, I can't even imagine managing a modern family without Instacart. We got an Instacart delivery just last night because my parents are in town again and the kids were just out of milk. Instacart can get you groceries delivered in as fast as one hour or at a time that works with your schedule. Instacart is available at your favorite stores, groceries delivered from local and national retailers, and you're totally in control. You get the app or go to instacart.com and shop the groceries you need from your favorite local retailers like we did last night. Try Instacart and get $10 off your first order. To get this limited time offer, go to instacart.com or download the mobile app and enter my promo code RIDE at checkout. That's $10 off your first order today at instacart.com or through the mobile app. And don't forget to enter the promo code RIDE, R-I-D-E, at checkout. Instacart.com or through the mobile app with my code RIDE. Today's episode is sponsored by Wix. 140 million people use Wix to create their websites. As I said last time, you might think, Brian, I'm a super sophisticated designer or developer. Okay, but Wix is still for you. With Wix, you can build sites with artificial intelligence. You can add voice recognition capabilities and chatbots. And with Wix, you get actionable analytics to solve those annoying IT issues that spring up that you don't want to even deal with. If you're a business, Wix is double for you because you get an all-in-one solution to create an online presence, complete e-commerce solutions, chatbots to communicate in real time with customers, built-in tools to manage business workflow. And if you're someone that's never created a website before, Wix is triple for you. No HTML or CSS is even necessary to create dynamic web pages, set up databases and content-rich sites without coding, create forms, review sections, quizzes, and more. Not a single drop of coding knowledge required. Wix is the most technologically advanced website building platform available. Get started now by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com, slash podcast to get 10% off. Get started today with 10% off at Wix.com slash podcast. Um, switching gears a bit, uh, I, I've been ranting about YouTube lately, but not, I'm not to go into my rants, but the, there's been this, um, it's, I I feel like it's been going on for a while now. The idea that creators on YouTube feel like YouTube is fundamentally changing and like leaving them behind. And you wrote about that a bit, like is, is YouTube leaving behind the concept of the site that we've understood where, oh, anyone uploads video. And if that's the case, isn't that kind of inevitable? Like, that's what they would have to do eventually, right? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the 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 argument with every platform is the the, the original creators who fueled the, that platform's growth eventually get kind of left behind as uh, as the platform starts courting these shinier objects, these bigger corporations, these bigger media companies. Like I remember, I was an editor at US News and World Report, and Google Plus launched, 
And we soon had like a, a person from Google Plus who or who worked for Google reach out to us and say, hey, if you guys start uh, posting regularly to Google Plus, we'll we'll help direct people to follow your your page. And basically, we were like, okay, you know, free followers. So we started posting to Google Plus, and basically, we just all of a sudden we were start Google had turned something on where we were being recommended <laughs> right, right. To, to followers. And before you knew it, we had over three hundred thousand followers on right. Google Plus. You know, did we earn those followers? No, we were given those followers by can virtue I just, that we were can mainstream. Can I just interject yeah. real quick? Like, yeah. people don't know that when people see, well, some a podcast has. Has, uh, well, people can't see what podcasts have, but a, a YouTuber has so many subscribers, a, a, a Twitter. Uh, but there was a time when Twitter would uh, flip a switch and all of a sudden you'd get 70,000 followers because they were recommending you. Like people underestimate the early adopters in any platform, in any media, in any whatever, like even, you know, Twitch people now and things like that. Well, early on, they were promoting certain people. And and that is really underestimated for people being like, well, I'm going to become a Twitch star. Well, you're, you're maybe too late because it's unless they turn the switch, like it's not that easy. You're going to have to grind it out. Yeah, it's like same thing with like Medium. Like at some point, I was an early adopter of Medium, and I was publishing a lot of content there. And all of a sudden, somebody had flipped some switch, and it was obvious that new users who were signing up for Medium were getting recommended my uh, my account. So I so then I had like ten thousand new followers like overnight. So yeah, that definitely happens. But like with YouTube specifically, they found that you know studies have now shown uh, with the YouTube trending page, which you think is completely run by an algorithm, but what they found is it's actually very much human curated because they find that you know mainstream news sources or mainstream sources like CNN or the late night shows like Jimmy Fallon or Stephen Colbert they can make it onto the trending tab by having only like 10 to 20,000 video views which in the realm of YouTube isn't that many whereas like a, a independent creator like a Logan Paul or uh, Ethan Klein they need to hit like 10 million views in order to make it onto YouTube's trending tab. So you can see right there, that's that dynamic in play where YouTube wants to encourage more posting from mainstream media companies because that's the kind of stuff that's safer for brands that advertisers want to be advertising against uh, so that they're lowering the bar for these uh these mainstream media companies and it's becoming a harder ecosystem for a newer entrant or an independent creator to thrive in. Well, see, and that that's also the dirty secret of all of these platforms is when, when it behooves them, the algorithms are faceless and inhuman and we don't know how they work, but yeah, meritocratic supposedly. Right. But then also (laughs) there's thumbs on the scale when it's useful for them, which is yeah, and I and I I still write for mainstream news sources when it, you know I'll freelance for them. I haven't worked in a full time salary job for mainstream news source in a while, and so I I really have been like focused on building out my personal brand and my own content that I own. I you know put a lot of emphasis in my podcast, a lot of emphasis in my newsletter, and as an independent creator, it's very frustrating to me because like for instance, like Facebook, like I barely pay attention to my Facebook page because Facebook is siphoned off so much reach. I'm I'm a little bit more focused on the Facebook group that I've been running, but yeah, like I feel like the the thumb is always on the scale. It's hard, it's hard enough as an independent creator with no 
not the huge resources of a media company to 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 get ahead and get your content noticed. But then on top of that, when you see that the platforms are giving free distribution to these media companies, and that's why it's always rich that these media companies are always con- complaining about Facebook and Google, you know, not sharing money and how it's siphoned all this money away from them and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, they, they actually get favored a lot in, in a lot of ways by their recommended user list and their algorithms where they're specifically... Like you said, the thumb is on the scale in their favor. Yeah, listen, Marie Kondo got a leg up at some point, and she knows when that happened. And <laughs> so you can't just become a Marie Kondo by just throwing stuff up on. Uh, okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna end by uh, promoting your uh, personal brands and and all of your channels and things like that. But real quick, last one because we're on a podcast. Sure. Um, one of the things that you wrote that I had never thought about. Because I always, you know, I'm in podcasting, you see all these things about how, um, you know, podcasting is uh, increasing, such percentage of Americans listen to a podcast weekly, and that's going up such percentage over year over year. But um, like you pointed out that podcast listening only accounts for like 4% of listening in cars right now. And 51% of Americans say they've listened to at least one podcast, but only 22% of Americans listened to a podcast last week. So that's like, tens of millions of people have tried this medium and been like, yeah, eh, you know, so I'm curious what you think about podcasting as a platform right now, either for yourself or, or, or just generally in the, in the big picture of, of a medium and, and an industry. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to really be continue growing really quickly. Like one of the, they always talk about the serial moment when you know serial launched, and then that just exposed a lot more people to podcasting. And so, not only did serial have huge listener numbers, but it, but generally, all podcasters who were publishing at that point saw a huge lift in their uh, in their followings and their their download numbers because it was bringing more people on the on the bringing more people into podcasting. So we're, we're waiting to find out what the next serial moment is going to be. And one of the things I predicted and this kind of what you alluded to with the, those, those statistics is I think a lot of people are trying podcasts. Like they'll, de- they'll open a podcast app for the first time. They'll download a podcast they heard about and they'll be like, Oh, this is pretty cool. This is a pretty good experience, but it's not a habit because they've just downloaded that one podcast. They need to wait to a week later till the next episode comes in. They might not be remembering to op- to continually open up that podcast app. So the, I think, you know, the next step forward in terms of really explosion and growth is some kind of podcast recommendation engine or some kind of way that podcasts can be put in place in front of people so that they don't have to go through a lot of energy to to hunt down new quality podcasts. My theory is that Spotify is going to be that because it already has 200 million users who are listening it or you're already opening that that app every single day to listen to music. So if it can tastefully and without too much intrusion start inserting podcast episodes into their feeds, then they will organically start uh, you know incorporating podcasts into their daily lives. And then at that point, we might see like a really huge explosion in podcast listening. Well, your your words to God's ear. Um, before we go now, we are officially going. Um, Simon, uh, plug your channels, podcasts, newsletters, Facebook groups, whatever. So the one thing, so this is kind of like testing a theory that I keep on hearing with podcasting is I hear that the best way to grow podcast audience is by hearing about it on another podcast. So I'm just going to plug one single thing, okay. and it's my my podcast, The Business of Content. 
Um, I just and I, I have a special treat for your listeners. I just interviewed you <laughs> on this podcast. So if you go and subscribe, they're going to get to hear how basically the daily tech meme ride home podcast came to be. They're going to get some really good uh, behind the scene juicy tidbits about uh, y- you know how you how you blackmailed your way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, how, how you got you, you formed Weasel. this podcast. Yes, yes. Um, so, and I and I have really high. If you if you work in media, tech, uh, marketing, advertising, I I interview. Like I just had the president of Vox Media on. I've had you know top executives at the New York Times, Slate, Quartz, um, the Financial Times. If if you work in media, you should definitely download my podcast. It's called the Business of Content. And let me. Um let me say that I listened to that podcast and it's fantastic. So yes, business of podcast. Thank you, Simon. Business of content. content. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) We we, we talked about this earlier about editing. I'm not going to edit that. (laughs) My, my listeners know that I'm, I'm lazy and, and uh, going. So business of content on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or whatever. Thank you, Simon. Yes. Thank you so much.